Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. A crime wave has swept across the nation. More robberies and the largest spike in murders in six decades. As Biden works to shed the defund the police label from the Democratic Party, a bipartisan push is underway on Capitol Hill to invest more in law enforcement. The fight over mask mandates and critical race theory continues in Loudoun County, Virginia. This time, 65 parents sign affidavits, which students attempt to serve to the members of the school board. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi says she wants tougher penalties for Congress members who violate insider trading laws. The issue of members of Congress trading stocks is gaining attention among lawmakers, both Democrats and Republicans. A professor's views on adult child sex are still drawing backlash. A petitions racking up tens of thousands of signatures, demanding that the professor be fired. But he might have the Constitution on his side. Numerous Canadian provinces around announced plans to end pandemic measures, but the protesting truckers say this isn't enough and are blockading more border crossings between Canada and the U.S. A crime wave has swept across the nation. Robberies are up. People are walking out of stores with merchandise. The Biden administration insists that tackling crime is a focus for the administration. And today on Capitol Hill, there was a bipartisan push for Washington to take swift action. NTD's Melina Weiskup reports for us. Here on Capitol Hill, lawmakers are discussing how to tackle the rise in crime. At the same exact time, a group of Senate Republicans and a group of House Democrats spoke about their ideas for reducing this crime spike. House Democrats specifically want to send the message that this is an area that both parties can come together on. And this is one of them that we should all come together. The Congresswoman is a former chief of police herself. She's working with other House Democrats on a bipartisan bill to invest in police. This as a nationwide police shortage lingers, especially in the nation's most crime-ridden cities. The Big Apple this year has seen a crime spike in almost every police precinct. Six New York City police officers were shot this year. Two died. These are dangerous jobs. People wake up in the morning, tell their families goodbye, never knowing whether they're going to be able to come home. On the Hill, a bipartisan bill to invest in law enforcement is underway. It's the Invest in Law Enforcement Act of 2022, authored by Representative Gottheimer. It will allocate resources for body-worn cameras and cloud storage and provide grants for small departments to recruit new officers and retention bonuses to help departments keep their existing officers. President Biden has dedicated $350 billion from the American Rescue Plan passed last summer for local states and cities to invest in law enforcement. This in response to the crime spike, which included a 30% rise in murders in 2020, the largest jump in six decades, and the murder rate rose again last year. Murder rates are rising, assault rates are rising, carjacking rates are rising. Last year, 12 major American cities broke records, homicide rates. Another contributor to rising crime is some cities changing policies on how they're prosecuting crimes. Some district attorneys have announced they will not prosecute what they call minor crimes. Critics say this emboldens criminals. And while some Democrats stand behind these new policies, some Democrats are opposed to them. And if we want to reduce the crime rate, then we've got to identify those perpetrators and put them in jail. Now, investing more in law enforcement is something that could gain substantial bipartisan support. But of course, that depends on how much lawmakers want to politicize the issue or if they're more committed to tackling the crime spike. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskup, NTD News. On New Year's Day, Manhattan got a new district attorney, Alvin Brack. He immediately implemented a number of policies that have led many to say he's soft on crime. Bragg has been in office for 40 days, and today he addressed constituents' concerns in an online briefing. NTD's Arian Pazdar has more from Manhattan. 
When the Manhattan DA first took office, he ordered his team to dismiss certain crimes, such as trespassing and resisting arrest. And some felonies, including armed robberies that don't involve firearms, are now treated as misdemeanors. This has some people worried about their safety, and today Bragg addressed some of their concerns. Bragg says he wants to make incarceration a matter of last resort, which is why he prosecutes less. New York City consists of five different boroughs, each of which is its own county with its own DA. Bragg was asked whether criminals from other boroughs wouldn't just go to Manhattan to commit crimes amid the new policies. Compared to the other boroughs, kind of uh, higher, uh, sort of disproportionately, uh, kind of in terms of incarceration rates. Um, and so in, in many ways, um, you know, other boroughs were ahead of us in terms of some of the things we articulated. There are many gun-related charges that haven't been prosecuted yet. Bragg says it's hard to move them forward. It seems like a simple premise. Let's move these cases faster. Um, but it's, it's, it's hard logistically, right, because we've got uh, a backlog because of COVID. Most shoplifters in New York City are being let go a few hours after being arrested. Bragg says he wants to work with stores to aggregate those charges. But they are... Someone is, you know, taking, you know, $200 from, you know, four stores and sort of going along, uh, for lack of another word, their route, um, you know, being able to aggregate that conduct so it can be charged at a higher level. Bragg has said that his team can focus on serious crimes by dismissing lesser offenses. But many New York City residents and business owners say that all crimes should be prosecuted in order to make the city safe. Arian Pastar, NTD News, New York. Today, Senator Tom Cotton called on his Democratic colleagues to support his bill to end all mask mandates in schools. This comes as several Democratic governors are lifting their in-school mask rules. Although kids are at the lowest risk of hospitalization and death from the Wuhan coronavirus, they've endured and they continue to endure some of the most excessive, extreme and suffocating COVID restrictions of any population in our country. Senator Cotton called on Democrats to support his bill, but got immediate objection. If you want education decisions to happen at the local level, you do not tie the hands of state and local officials. You don't cut schools off from the resources they need just because you think you know better than the parents and local officials. Senator Cotton disagreed with Murray's argument. I think that you, as a parent, knows better. You know what's best for your child, not some Democratic politician, not some liberal superintendent, not some neurotic public health obsessive. School mask mandates have become a major controversy nationwide. Parents have pushed back against school districts for mandating students of all ages to wear masks. This week, Democratic governors in six states have announced an end to indoor mask mandates, some of them including schools. In Virginia, the state Senate just passed a bill to end school mask mandates with Democrat support. The White House is not behind this move. During today's briefing, the CDC director said that the agency's guidance on indoor masking has not changed. They will continue to endorse universal masking in schools. You know, our hospitalizations are still high. Our death rates are still high. So as we work towards that and as we um, are encouraged by the current trends, we are not there yet. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki said today that the administration will continue recommending the CDC's guidelines on masking in schools. Parents in Loudoun County, Virginia, are continuing to fight against mask mandates and critical race theory in their children's schools. Many of the parents say they don't feel that anyone is listening, and that has left them no choice, they say, but to serve papers to the members of the school board. And TD's Jason Perry has the story. Parents in Loudoun County, Virginia are fed up with their school board and say they don't listen. Now, 65 parents have signed affidavits in an attempt to force a response from the board members. In the affidavits, they asked the board to end unconstitutional COVID-19 mandates, stop all critical race theory-related programs, and dedicate restrooms to male, female, transgender, and staff, among other requests. 
According to Renee Kemp, one of the organizers of the effort, the school board will either respond with backup documents to support their current policies or ignore them, which she says is equivalent to admitting the wrongdoing alleged in the affidavits. Parents applauded and cheered as the kids walked to the front of the room with the affidavits in hand. One of the board members, Atusa Reeser, immediately got up and left the room, and commotion erupted. School board chair Jeff Morse then took control of the room. The children then left the room to serve the papers to the school staff. Chief Operations Officer Kevin Lewis then met Megan Rafalski, who is the leader of the Education Task Force on behalf of various grassroots parent organizations in Loudoun County. We have done everything we possibly can. We've come to school board meetings, we've talked, we've written emails, we've tried to talk to our principals. Our kids are being shut out. We just want to go to school, okay? That's all we're trying to do. And they've made us do this. We've spent nearly $1,000 to print documents that we have to serve you to ask you to please look at these things. How have we gotten here in American society? I don't understand. Also on Tuesday, Virginia's Democrat-controlled state Senate passed a bill to end mask mandates in public schools. The bill is expected to pass the Republican-majority state house and soon arrive at Governor Glenn Youngkin's desk. Jason Perry, NCD News, New York. And also joining Virginia, New York, Illinois, and Rhode Island announced today an end date for mask requirements and other COVID restrictions. New York Governor Kathy Hochul and Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker made similar announcements to end their state's mask mandates for most indoor public settings. But both states are keeping masking rules in schools. New York will drop its mandate for businesses effective Thursday, but the state will still require masks in healthcare settings and on public transportation. Illinois will lift its mandates starting February 28th, with exceptions for settings such as hospitals and nursing homes. Rhode Island no longer requires proof of vaccination, and in addition to removing mask requirements in public areas, the state is also ending mask mandates in schools. Massachusetts will no longer require students and, and staff in schools to wear face coverings while indoors starting February 28th. Also today, the House Education Committee advanced an amended bill to block local school boards from imposing mask mandates. And matching amended legislation is moving through the Senate. Top Democrats are calling for tighter restrictions on lawmakers trading stocks. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi says there should be tougher fines for violating a law that prohibits members of Congress from insider trading, while others say lawmakers should be banned from trading stocks altogether. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer is asking Congress to address the issue. NTD's Allison Lee has more. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi answered reporter questions on Wednesday about Congress members trading stocks. She had previously resisted banning stock trading from members of Congress. She said in December that members, quote, should be able to participate in that. But now she's suggesting tougher penalties for lawmakers who break the rules. We have to tighten the fines on those who violate the Stock Act. It's evidently not sufficient to deter behavior. Uh, and then a third is just really, it has to be government-wide. The Stock Act of 2012 bars members and employees of Congress from insider trading. But according to an investigation by Business Insider, 55 members of Congress have violated the act in 2021 alone. And another analysis shows that Pelosi and her husband have made millions from stock trading since taking office. Pelosi now suggests expanding the requirement of the Stock Act to the judiciary branch. The court system, the, the third branch of government, the judiciary, has no reporting. The Supreme Court has no disclosure. It has no reporting of stock transactions, and it makes important decisions every day. 
Banning stock trading altogether from members of Congress has some bipartisan support among the lawmakers themselves. Last month, Republican Senator Josh Hawley and Democratic Senators Mark Kelly and John Ossoff introduced two separate bills targeting the issue. Now, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer wants the chamber to act on them. I believe this is an important issue <coughs> that Congress should address. And it's something that has, been, that has clearly raised interest from both sides of the aisle over the past few weeks. As I said yesterday, there are a number of senators with various proposals. Schumer says he's asked his Democratic colleagues to come up with a single bill the Senate can work on and that he hopes they can pass something in a bipartisan way. But not everyone supports a blanket ban. Republican Congressman Dan Crenshaw says members should be allowed to invest in stock funds and trade individual stocks. Meanwhile, the House Administration Committee is currently reviewing various proposals on this issue. Allison Lee, NTD News. Calls for the termination of a New York professor are getting louder. His comments on adult child sex drew a wave of backlash. Even the university has condemned his views, but says it's committed to free speech. NTD's Miguel Moreno reports. Over 30,000 people want Professor Stephen Kirshner fired. This is because he has questioned whether adult child sex is wrong. Views he expressed in this video published by Brain in a Vat on YouTube. Imagine that an adult male uh, wants to have sex with a 12-year-old girl. Imagine that she's a willing participant. A, a very standard, very widely held view that there's something deeply wrong about this. And it's wrong independent of it being criminalized. It's not obvious to me that it is in fact wrong. I think this is a mistake. He also questioned whether adult infant sex is wrong. Um, there are students who can attend his class, and when they hear these views, and like those ideas are being reinforced. They think Olivia Sylvester says she's a student at State University of New York, Fredonia, where Kirshner teaches. She started this petition, which demands that the university fire Kirshner, and it almost has 35,000 signatures. Why are you calling on the university to fire Professor Kirshner? I want him fired because, you know, I go to this college, I don't think this man should reflect uh, the college and represent the education I'm receiving from here. You know, he's hired as a teacher and he's hired to publish works and what he does with them is he spreads these hateful views in both what he speaks about and what he publishes, you know, sexism, racism, hate towards veterans, pedophilia, and like so much more. And it's disgusting and I don't want to go to a college that hires him and keeps him here. Sylvester says the professor's views are harmful to students who've dealt with sexual abuse. Kirshner has defended non-consensual adult child sex. He's also argued that people shouldn't be very grateful to veterans. We contacted him for comment, but he hasn't gotten back to us. According to WGRZ, Fredonia University said it's committed to the principles of academic freedom and freedom of speech, but condemned the professor's views. No word of whether Kirshner will be fired. The Academic Freedom Alliance and the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education have defended Kirshner in letters to Fredonia University President Stephen Collison. Both say the professor's speech is protected by the First Amendment, and one demands that Collison give Kirshner access to the campus again. Last week, the president assigned Kirshner to off-campus duties until further notice. Miguel Moreno, NTD News. Canada is facing more blockades by protesting truckers. While numerous provinces are announcing plans to scrap pandemic measures, the protesters say this isn't enough. They say the protests will continue until all mandates and restrictions end. A growing number of Canadian provinces are announcing plans to do away with pandemic measures. This as pressure continues to mount from the truckers protesting mandates and restrictions. Nova Scotia, Prince Edward Island, Saskatchewan and Quebec have outlined plans to end most restrictions and will soon begin rolling them back. The Premier of Alberta ended the province's vaccine passport requirement Tuesday night. Other pandemic restrictions will end in three weeks. This may appear as a win for the truckers who have been protesting for over a week and a half, but they still aren't satisfied. In Alberta, truckers and farmers supporting the nationwide protests are once again blockading the Coutts border crossing both into and out of Canada. The blockade, made up of trucks, cars and tractors, began Tuesday night. The protesters say they want all restrictions gone, not just some. 
Rebel News reports that protesters were allowing cattle liners through Wednesday afternoon before closing off the border again. Police Wednesday called the protests illegal and asked demonstrators to move to another location. Police acknowledge they likely wouldn't be able to move the vehicles themselves. And Canada-bound traffic on two cross-border bridges between Michigan and Ontario has come to a virtual standstill. The Canada-bound sides of both the Ambassador Bridge and the Blue Water Bridge have now become protest points. Windsor Mayor Drew Dilkin said Wednesday he's requesting more police resources to be deployed to the city. He said every hour this protest continues, our community hurts. Dilkin said an estimated $450 million worth of goods crosses the Windsor-Detroit border daily. This represents a third of all surface trade between America and Canada. Over in Ottawa, the heart of the protests, just over 400 trucks remain. And as police and city officials try to end the protests, it seems like towing the vehicles away may not be an option. According to the Ottawa city manager, all tow truck operators on contract with the city have refused to remove the vehicles associated with the Freedom Convoy. The city has said it's reviewing those companies' contracts and looking at possible actions against the companies. Police are also looking outside Ottawa for support to remove the trucks. And now Texas and Missouri are launching investigations into GoFundMe for blocking the donations to the Freedom Convoy. Supporters raised around $8 million U.S. million through the platform. Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton says GoFundMe's behavior should ring alarm bells to anyone using the donation platform. Freedom Convoy organizers are now using another platform, GiveSendGo, and they have so far received close to $8 million U.S. million. And foreign investors are joining U.S. ones, focusing more on commercial property like warehouses and rental apartments. In fact, foreign investment in U.S. commercial real estate has topped pre-pandemic levels. NTD's Colin Fredrickson has the details. Foreign money is flooding into commercial real estate in the United States, even surpassing pre-pandemic levels. According to Real Capital Analytics, pensions and other foreign institutions purchased about $70 billion of U.S. commercial real estate in 2021. That was the highest number since 2018. Now we're seeing a lot of foreign investment definitely following the trend of the warehouses. Jason Keyes is the principal broker at Keyes Commercial. He says this trend is mainly due to the e-commerce boom in the post-pandemic age. Businesses need warehouses for stocking products because of the supply chain constraints. Even in my own transactions in just in the last three to six months, we've leased up all the available warehouse space we have. U.S. commercial property sales broke a record last year, partly thanks to foreign investment. Before the pandemic, foreign buyers focused more on office buildings and hotels in major cities like New York. But starting in 2021, overseas money rushed into warehouses, rental apartments, and specialized buildings for pharmaceutical businesses. Co-host of the Real Estate Guys radio show, Russell Gray, says right now you can't do much better than U.S. real estate. If you look at the sectors they're going into, apartments, bread and butter real estate, uh, distribution, warehousing, bread and butter real estate, and pharmaceutical companies, which makes a lot of sense. We're in the middle of a pandemic and the pharmaceutical sector is booming. So what the numbers are telling us is that capital feels safe in U.S. real estate. Experts think more types of commercial property will be included in this year's buying spree, like student housing, data centers, and medical office buildings. Colin Fredrickson, NTD News. Coming up, a gold medalist for Team China is dodging questions about her citizenship status. She was born in the U.S., but says she's Chinese while in China. At the same time, her rise to fame has brought on a heap of endorsement deals. And in the Olympics, a snowboarder won Team USA their first gold, while decorated teammate Sean White faced elimination. And another costly mistake from Michaela Schifrin on the slopes. That and more here on NTD News. Gold medalist Eileen Gu has risen to a place of stardom on Team China, affectionately dubbed Beijing's Olympic darling, after claiming victory on the ski slopes. But some wonder whether she's actually eligible to compete for the country. Reporters are posing questions about her citizenship status, but for now, the answer remains unclear. Here's more on that. 
All eyes are on Beijing for the Winter Games, and one Olympian is drawing particular attention. Eileen Gu is a freestyle skier competing for Team China. She's become Beijing's Olympic darling in recent days, lifted to hero status after claiming her first gold medal for the country. But the U.S.-born athlete is facing questions, not about her sport, but her citizenship. Gu repeatedly declined a comment about her citizenship status Tuesday. Instead, saying during a press conference, her mission is to use sport as a force for unity. I'm American when I'm in the U.S. and I'm Chinese when I'm in China. Reporters asked similar questions in a number of different ways, but Gu deflected each one. The issue comes as many wonder why Gu was allowed to compete for China. That's because Chinese law doesn't allow dual citizenship, and there is no record showing Gu has given up her U.S. status. But who exactly makes the rules for who is and isn't allowed to compete for a given country? And what is the rule? The Olympic Charter states that any competitor must be a national of the country they represent, adding that if an athlete is a national of two or more countries, they may choose to represent either one of them. But Chinese law considers its non-citizen permanent residents foreigners. It states any foreigners who obtained a foreign permanent resident ID card must present a valid passport and foreign permanent resident ID card to exit and enter China. According to a BBC report, the Chinese consulate general in New York confirmed Gu has been through the process to obtain permanent residency and become eligible for China's Olympic team. Gu's newfound popularity has come with added perks. She now endorses over 20 brands in China. That's up from just seven before 2021. And most of her original sponsors are tied to skiing. But since last year, brands unrelated to the sport have sought her out for endorsements. These brands include designer fashion and beauty companies like Louis Vuitton and Estee Lauder, luxury carmaker Cadillac, Swiss watchmaker IWC, and home goods manufacturer Kohler. Her endorsement fee for each new sponsor has skyrocketed, now sitting at nearly $2 million. The total value of her endorsements is estimated at roughly $35 million, revenue she shares with her agency. Wednesday in the Olympics, we saw a three-time halfpipe champion facing elimination, a first gold medal for Team USA, and more heartbreak for Michaela Schifrin. NTD's Dave Martin has more. This year's Olympics have seen a significant decline in viewership, starting with the opening ceremonies. Friday's kickoff event drew a record low rating of 16 million, which includes a streaming audience and pales in comparison to the 28 million who tuned into the same event four years ago when it was held in South Korea. And through the first four nights of competition, NBC is on track for the lowest rated winter games in history. Although NBC had likely secured advertisers in advance of the games, the ratings could affect sponsors down the road. The cost could be high, though, as NBC agreed eight years ago to pay $7.75 billion to air six Olympics games from 2021 through 2032. Michaela Schifrin's Nightmare Olympics continued Wednesday as she skied out and failed to finish a race, this time the slalom, just five seconds into her descent. Previously, Schifrin slipped on the giant slalom and was unable to finish. The shocking turn of events means the popular American skier is out of two competitions she previously had won Olympic gold in. Schifrin previously said she plans to compete in all six events. The next scheduled competition is a Super G on Friday. Three-time gold medal winner Sean White rebounded from a fall on his first run in his signature event, the halfpipe, to make the finals. The 35-year-old White, who announced he'll be retiring at the end of these games, was in the outside looking in after placing 19th on his initial run. With the pressure of knowing only the top 12 riders advance, White smoothly performed a five-trick routine in his second run and let out a big scream after he finished. The judges awarded him a score of 86.25, the fourth best score of anyone, and now he'll be competing Friday for gold. The U.S. got their first gold medal of these games Wednesday as snowboarder Lindsay Jacobellis won the snowboard cross final. The win came 16 years after her last Olympic medal when she had to settle for silver in the same race after a fall at the end cost her the gold. Now through eight days of competition, Russia has the most medals with 11, followed by Norway and Austria with 10 apiece. Germany, though, has accrued the most golds with five, including three from the luge. Dave Martin, NTD News. 
New York. And coming up, Tesla recalls nearly 27,000 vehicles, citing visibility concerns issues due to windshield defrosting issues. This is the third recall for the car maker in recent weeks. And California's high-speed rail project is increasing the price tag again. An additional $5 billion is getting tacked on to the total estimated cost to finish the project. Tesla received a recall notice saying that the heat pump in some of their vehicles could have problems defrosting the windows fast enough, impairing visibility. The recall will apply to almost 27,000 Tesla cars. NTD's Jason Blair brings us more. The National Highway Traffic Safety Administration issued a recall for nearly 27,000 Tesla vehicles due to an issue with the cabin heating systems. The NHTSA is concerned that the heat pump might not be able to defrost the windshield quickly enough, cutting visibility and increasing the risk of a crash. Tesla says it has not heard of any crashes or injuries tied to the heat pump problem. This is the latest of three recalls for the electric vehicle maker in 2022. According to documents posted by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, this issue, like the others, will be fixed by Tesla with a software update. Earlier this year, there were issues regarding a seatbelt chime problem and with the full self-driving software rolling through stop signs and not coming to a complete halt. The NHTSA also says in the recall notice that a software error can cause a valve in the vehicle's heat pumps to open unintentionally, trapping refrigerant inside the evaporator. That can reduce defrosting performance. The problem can deplete the refrigerant in some parts of the heat pump, causing the compressor to stop working as a fail-safe measure. That can cause loss of cabin heating, largely when it's minus 14 degrees Fahrenheit or colder. Jason Blair, NTD News, California. Costs for California's high-speed rail project are increasing again. Another $5 billion is being added to the total price tag, with no track being laid down yet. NTD's Eileen Ang brings us more. According to the California High-Speed Rail Authority's estimates released Tuesday, it could take $105 billion to finish the route from San Francisco to Los Angeles. The authority's biennial business plan cited minimizing community disruption for the updated cost. This includes distancing the train from the Cesar E. Chavez National Monument in the Central Valley and tunneling tracks near the Burbank Airport. The project's price tag has steadily risen since 2008, when the total cost was $40 billion. Since then, the costs have kept climbing amid struggles to get the necessary land, as well as other delays. Today, the rail authority is far short of the money it needs to complete the full project. No track has been laid yet, but the authority has obtained 90% of the land it needs for the first segment, and more than half of the full 500-mile route is now environmentally cleared. Construction for the first part of the line is underway on a 119-mile segment from Merced to Bakersfield, where trains are tested before they carry passengers. In a statement, Assemblyman Jim Patterson said, Given the embarrassing failures this project has raked up, I'd be surprised if the feds decide to throw more money at it. During the Obama administration, California won roughly $3.5 billion for the project. Then former President Trump revoked about $1 billion of that. The Biden administration has returned those funds. The project expects to receive more money from the Biden administration and the state. CEO Brian Kelly said this is a great opportunity to really move the project forward. Eileen Ang, NTD News, California. Falling in love or falling victim? It may be both. The FBI warns the public about romance scams, also known as confidence fraud, and how to avoid it. We hear more from NTD's David Lamb. According to one study, California ranks number one for most targeted states for romance scams. With Valentine's Day coming up, the FBI warns the public about becoming a victim. What better month than February to shed some light on a fraud scheme we commonly refer to as romance scams? Now that meeting people online is commonplace, the FBI says to be aware if the individual seems too perfect or quickly asks to go offline. These occur when a criminal adopts a fake online identity to gain a victim's affection and trust. Then, the scammer uses that illusion of a romantic or close relationship to manipulate and steal from the victim. 
This also includes the grandparent scheme and any scheme in which the perpetrator preys on the victim's heartstrings. The FBI says to research the person's photo and profile using online searches to see if it's been used elsewhere. Other red flags are if they try to encourage isolation from friends and family. They may also request inappropriate photos or financial info. Might someone you know and love fall prey to a romance scam? You may just save a loved one from emotional pain and financial suffering. In January this year, authorities were seeking two fugitives allegedly running an illegal business tied to romance scams. The DOJ said the fugitives scammed nearly $1.1 million in 2017 from romance scam victims. David Lamb, NTD News, California. Coming up, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson says laws requiring people in England with COVID-19 to self-isolate could be lifted within weeks. And another Belarusian athlete flees the country. A 17-year-old cross-country skier was barred from competition over the family's political views. Find out more in just a moment here on NTD News. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson has said that laws requiring people in England with COVID-19 to self-isolate may be lifted earlier than planned. And TD's David English has more. Mr Speaker, I can tell the House today that it is my intention to return on the first day after the half-term recess to present our strategy for living with COVID. Yeah. Provided the current encouraging trends in the data continue, it is my expectation that we will be able to end the last domestic restrictions, including the legal requirement to self-isolate if you test positive, a full month early, Mr Speaker. Currently, people in England are required to self-isolate for at least five days, with this restriction set to expire on March 24th. But Mr Johnson says he expects the last domestic rules could end in February, as long as the data trends stay positive. The PM intends to outline the government's strategy for living with COVID when Parliament returns from recess on the 21st of this month. NHS figures show there were over 11,000 people in England's hospitals with COVID-19 on Tuesday. This is down 11% on the previous week, but still higher than before Christmas. However, less than 400 patients are in mechanical ventilator beds, the lowest number since last July. According to a British public spending watchdog, UK trade with the EU has been knocked by Brexit, with businesses facing higher costs, more paperwork and border delays. The government committee warns if passenger volume returns to pre-pandemic levels this summer, the border will face more pressure. NTD's Eddie Aitken has more. A report by the Public Accounts Committee said while it was hard to separate the impact of Brexit from the effects of the pandemic, it was clear that the EU exit has had an impact. Chair of the committee, Dame Meg Heller, said that despite promises to free up firms and boost productivity, the only detectable impact so far is increased costs, paperwork and border delays. The committee also warned of lengthy border delays and lorry queues once passenger numbers return to normal, as the new border arrangements have not yet been tested at pre-pandemic levels. The committee said this could be compounded by further checks at ports under the EU's new entry and exit system, and that government plans to create the most effective border in the world by 2025 is optimistic given where things stand today. The report comes after the Prime Minister appointed Jacob Rees-Mogg as Minister for Brexit Opportunities as part of a cabinet reshuffle. Eddie Aitken, NTD News. The EU Commission President's personal messages to the Pfizer CEO are raising questions in Brussels. The focus is on the terms of the contract for Pfizer's COVID vaccines and the liability of the pharmaceutical company for possible side effects. NTD's David Vives has the details. What is the content of text messages exchanged between European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen and Pfizer's boss as the EU was negotiating a deal to purchase 1.8 billion doses of Covid vaccine in April 2021? This is the question European Ombudsman Emily O'Reilly asked the EU Commission to answer, but so far with no success. The Ombudsman's job is to hold the EU's institutions to account. O'Reilly was not the first who tried to understand the terms behind the contract between the EU Commission and the American pharmaceutical company. A journalist of news site 
Netspolitik.org has also sent requests to the Commission for the messages. According to the EU transparency law, the public has the right to access all EU documents, but in the case of these messages, it does not seem to apply. A European Member of Parliament has said Leyen should resign over not releasing the messages. And I will just show you the pages. These are the pages. You see? They call this transparency. The issue of transparency regarding vaccine contracts with Pfizer has been also raised in Brazil, where the contract between the pharma giant and the government was leaked. According to then Minister of Health, one aspect would be, quote, a complete disclaimer for side effects from today to infinity regarding Pfizer's liability. According to lawyer Diane Protat, who works with the French Senate. When two parties sign a contract involving the third party, the contract only binds two parties. Whatever Pfizer signed with the Commission, that's the same. If people experience side effects, they can hold the pharmaceutical companies accountable and these companies will have to explain themselves. The EU Commission says pharmaceutical companies are still liable for side effects, though the EU has adjusted some of the rules around vaccines. This is a well-known principle. Fraud corrupts everything on its way. If you can prove that the studies performed to get the conditional marketing authorization of a drug are unreliable, that there has been fraud or lies, or that the product is defective, then pharmaceutical companies are responsible. Those are the ones who would have to compensate potential victims and not the taxpayers. The Ombudsman recently asked to remake the EU's administrative practices in order to give the public better access to documents. David Vives, NTD News, Paris. And in Belarus, a cross-country skier has been banned from competing. The country's sports officials accused her of supporting the political opposition. Her family then had to f escape for fear of backlash from the authorities. Daria has been stripped of her rights to do sports or take part in competitions. I don't see the possibility of her continuing her career in Belarus. It happened due to such made-up reasons. Daria Dalitovic was one of the most promising junior cross-country skiers in Belarus. Just before the Winter Olympics, the Belarusian Ski Association deactivated her FIS code, effectively banning her from participating in competitions. The 17-year-old fled with her family to Poland, where she hopes to continue her training. I'm upset, of course. It would have been simpler to stay a few months and finish middle school. Here, I don't know how to do it. We're only working on it. Her father said Daria was targeted because of the family's political views. The father, a former skier, participated in protests against Belarusian leader Alexander Lukashenko. Facing pressure from authorities, he had to quit his job at a national training center. We could be accused of staging a demonstration and shouting slogans, long live Belarus, then just be sent to prison. The regime's crackdown on its own athletes has drawn international condemnation. The Belarus national team is still under scrutiny after a sprinter defected from last year's Tokyo Olympics. Daria was supposed to graduate from high school this year. It's unclear how she will continue her studies in Poland. Coming up, a Spanish pensioner fed up with a lack of in-person services at banks is on a mission to change things. Over 600,000 people have signed his online petition. And truffle hunting makes it onto UNESCO's intangible cultural heritage of humanity list. And an Italian truffle hunter explains the importance of his dogs to the process. Find out more after this short break. to Spain, where an online petition by a retiree struck a chord with over 600,000 people signing it. The retired doctor is asking banks to keep in-person services and consider pensioners' needs. He says the trend of online banking excludes most elderly people and those who don't have computer skills. We've got more from NTD's Joy Dugood. A Spanish pensioner is campaigning to keep in-person customer services at banks. The 78-year-old retired doctor from Valencia in southeast Spain travelled to Madrid this week to deliver over 600,000 signatures he'd collected. 
He said he set up the online petition because pensioners like him feel excluded as banks close branches and shift more services online. The people who moved me to start this campaign are the most vulnerable ones, those who have not even noticed the campaign, those who have not been able to sign up, and those who will never have access to the digital world and who are the most excluded, who are the oldest, the most vulnerable, and those whom I carry in my heart at this moment. His slogan on change.org is, I'm a senior citizen, not an idiot. San Juan says it's often hard to get customer services and sometimes he's treated like an idiot when asking for help. His petition struck a chord. Personalized attention. The banks should be available for elderly people who don't have family to help them or who don't have computer skills. It resonated with others too. The banks treat elderly people really poorly. All my relatives over 70 are absolutely unattended. My grandmother, my aunts, they cannot go to the bank and withdraw money like the rest of us. They need me to help them. It is really denigrating for them. They take away their dignity. As the petition campaign gathered momentum last month, Carlos San Juan received a phone call from the governor of Spain's central bank, and he met with the Spanish economic minister, who says the government will reach out to the finance sector. Spain has about 10 million retirees. Joy Dugid, NTD News. A letter reaches its recipient, and it only took 50 years. The letter was found in the cavities of an old building during restoration work, likely hidden by a thief. After several months of searching, postal workers managed to track down the rightful owner in Lithuania and deliver the letter. NTD's Trevor Piper has this report. This is how a letter written to a 12-year-old girl in Lithuania was delivered, 51 years and nine months after it was sent by a pen pal from Poland. For over five decades, this letter and others had been hidden. Postal workers contacted the recipient, Genoefa Klonowska, and met her personally to deliver the letter. They explained that they found it during a reconstruction, that they found it in a ventilation shaft in some building and wanted to deliver it. There are very few recipients who are still alive, so they asked to meet up, so I agreed. Lithuania was part of the Soviet Union then, and the letters were sent by relatives or pen pals from outside Lithuania from places such as Australia, Poland or Russia. In the letter, stamped in March 1970, a girl named Eva complained that buses no longer reach her village and having to walk outside in freezing temperatures. She also asks her pen pal to send her pictures of actors from local magazines. Klonowska says she corresponded with a lot of people from abroad as newspapers advertise pen pals. The letters were likely hidden by an unscrupulous postal worker after he searched them for cash or valuables. There was a door before, so we did a demolishing the, the wall, and uh, the bricks started to fall down uh, from the top. And back by the, back by the bricks uh, fall the letters, uh, a lot of them. The letters were covered in dust and dirt, some in small pieces. So we collected it and uh, construction workers asked, asked us what you want to do, throw it away, which is the easiest part, or uh, try to do something with it. So we did. Postal workers spent months looking for houses as street names and numbering have since changed. They investigated and tracked down families living at the delivery addresses in the late 1960s and early 1970s who could have moved since then. Only five recipients were found. Some were deceased and so the letters were given to relatives if they could be found. Also a very emotional moment for them. Trevor Piper, NTD News. Truffle hunting takes a lot of patience training, and a little luck. Now the skill has made it onto UNESCO's intangible cultural heritage of humanity list. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more. Eight years after the initial application, Italian truffle hunting made it onto the UNESCO list of world's intangible cultural heritage in December 2021. Here at the Truffle Dog University in the small town of Rodi, truffle hunting is all about the canine. Today the dog takes a truffle out here, tomorrow in another spot. He slowly creates a sort of Google Maps for himself. He memorizes the spots and then knows where to look for them the following time. This year, the truffle hunting season has not been very fruitful. But that's not the dog's fault. 
What's important is to know the area, and even if you look for two hours and you can't find anything, that doesn't mean the dog isn't good. It's possible there aren't any. It's something that takes a lot of patience. It's like training the dog. He won't be all ready to go after you explain it to him. It's a game that you are playing with him season after season. But beyond the value of the product, Monchiero says it's mostly about the bond between him and his dogs, Lady and Vicky. I look at Lady or Vicky and ask them if it's there, and they start digging with such enthusiasm and they jump on you. I always say it's like when you're married, husband and wife. After many years, you don't have to say anything. You just know what the person is saying by looking into their eyes. And with them, it's the same. You build a beautiful relationship. Truffles rely on certain trees, including oak, white poplar, lime, and willow. But the decreasing presence of these plants has contributed to a truffle decline. We are understanding more and more that some big issues that are linked to the weather, the climate, the safeguard of the plants and truffle trees, their upkeep, are all things that need collective actions. The white truffle hunting season will end on January 31, 2022. Truffle hunters will then wait until the spring to clean the woods and plant more trees, as they hope for a more fruitful season in September 2022. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.